My name is Hollis, and I am an alcoholic. Now, there's a whole bunch of people here who know me by a name, another name, and, and my other name is Greg, and he's an alcoholic, too. Now, all of my life, that name Hollis has been sort of a secret name, silent, like the pee in swimming. But as I get older, as I get older and less able to defend myself, that Hollis has kind of crept out from under a rock, and folks down here seem to know me by that more than they do by Greg. I answer to either one, and I've been called several more names. I, I was really, really pleased to be asked to come down here and talk. And I wondered why they were interested in having somebody from Augusta Springs, Virginia, come down here to the Virginia State Convention and talk. You know, those people who knew me as Greg and didn't know me as Hollis wondered who in the hell could be sober in Augusta Springs and able to get down here and talk. <laughs> and anybody from Western Charlottesville who's ever heard about Augusta Springs would wonder, well, the only, probably the only sober one in uh, Augusta Springs tonight is down here. And then I wondered why it was that after they'd had a Catholic priest of the caliber of Father Joe Martin come down here and share experience, strength, and hope with you, that they'd haul another Roman Catholic priest in here for Saturday afternoon. And that's me. And I heard Mac and Harry talking, and they said, well, you know, this is awful rough to have two Roman Catholic priests on the program. It's going to get the Protestants all bent out of shape. And Max said, we tried like the Dickens to find a sober Presbyterian, but we couldn't. <laughs> so let's get the worst example of the Roman ministry that we can down here, and that ought to keep the Baptists happy. So they invited me to come down here and share experience, strength, and hope with you, and I am really pleased and, and powerfully touched to be in this place today. I remember one other time that I was getting ready to speak, and I had had a little more coffee than was good for a man about to spend 40 minutes in front of all these people, and I stepped into the men's room in order to take care of nature, and a fellow came up next to me in the next journal, and he stood next to me and looked across at me, and and uh, we're standing there, and he says, you know, hi, how are you? And I said, fine, thank you. And he said, you know, I have to come in here just about as often from drinking all this coffee as I did have to come into places like this drinking beer. He said, but my aim sure has improved. <laughs> and so I am nervous, but I've been to the men's room before I got in here. And long about halfway through this thing, I'll get down to talking about sobriety. I love AA in Virginia, and it is a special treat for me to be able to come here and to know so many people. A lot of times, and I think some of the other speakers have mentioned the fact that they didn't know a living soul in this room. But because they had stood in front of you, friends, you became friends. And the love and the support that you had for them all along became obvious and very evident to them. And I'm standing here knowing a lot of you people. And so my pleasure is doubled. Because I've had a chance to share experience, strength, and hope with a lot of you people for a lot of years. And so the joy for me at being able to come here and share some more and to share the rest of this weekend with you is pretty deep. And I thank you.
On the morning of November 1st, 1977, in my 30th year, I woke up and said to myself, as I had said so many times before, you had too much to drink. You must be an alcoholic. Don't drink today. I had been saying that very same thing to myself in the mirror almost every morning when I was shaving this face for six months before that, that I had finally gotten to the point of even asking whether the term alcoholic applied to me. It was a question that I had asked and a question that I could not answer easily because a lot of the terrible things that happened to people that I knew were alcoholic had not yet happened to me. The symptoms of my disease came on me one by one, and seldom was more than one of them evident in my life at any given time. I drank alone. I drank to escape the pain of being who I was. I drank to reward myself. I drank to punish myself. I drank to not be alone. I drank so that I might become more alone. I was seldom drunk during my entire drinking career, but I don't believe that I was ever entirely sober. When I got sober and began to figure out how much I drank, it leveled out to approximately a fifth a day. I began drinking rather early, and I worked up to the point that when I walked through the door of AA, I was packing away all I could hold. I hadn't the foggiest notion what was going to greet me when I came into AA as a member. But I knew on that November 1st morning that alcohol and I needed to part company right now. I don't know if there are other alcoholics in my family. My father died when I was rather young, and he drank, but I don't believe he drank abusively. My mother was never much for drinking. My brother can drink safely. My sister chooses not to drink because it affects her physically. And so I don't know whether that theory about alcohol being a genetic factor in our lives is true of me. And I have no children of which to speak. (laughs) So I don't know whether or not it's spread around. And I may be the single site in my family where the gene pool becomes a swamp. That's all I can say about it. I may be where it started. I may be where it stopped. I would hope so. On that November morning, I went to my office. I opened my mail. There were two pieces of literature in my stack of mail, and the first one was a little news note from the Christophers, a Roman Catholic organization. And I opened it up, and along the top and in the front of this little news note was the word alcoholism. And I opened it up, and inside was a story of a housewife who could not stop drinking beer. And I put it down. That's nice. I picked up the next piece of literature. And it was for the drying out joint that Father Martin mentioned yesterday, Guest House, in Lake Orion, Michigan. For years I had been sending them money. Someone said I was renting a bed. (laughs) And the name on this pamphlet was Priests and Alcoholism. And I believe for me that was a turning point. 
I held those two pieces of mail in my hand. And I was able to say to myself, honestly, in a way that I had not been able to say it before, I must do something. And I immediately rang a friend of mine, Father Vernon B., who was then the chaplain of the alcoholic unit at E.G. Williams Hospital in Richmond. And Vernon knew me. He had come to a rectory in which I was living to fetch another priest who had drank all of our aftershave lotion. I was able to see that this man had had a slip. I cannot stand the smell of high karate to this day. (laughs) And Vernon thought I was writing a paper and made an appointment with me for two weeks later, which would not do. The second person I called was a German fellow named John W. He had worked for the Drug and Alcohol Services, then headquartered in the mosque in Richmond, right behind my office in the Catholic Chancery. And John was on vacation. I made a third call to a priest friend of mine with whom I had lived, Father Bob Quirin, a very close non-alcoholic friend of mine who had been my deacon supervisor and who was then the director of administrative priests in the Catholic Diocese of Richmond. I said, Bob, I need to talk. And I walked the hundred feet around to his office and sat down and said, I'm having a problem with my drinking. I believe I'm an alcoholic. And Bob had no trouble agreeing with the fact that I was probably an alcoholic. Just before Christmas in my deacon year, which is 1973 and 74, I had sat in the, li- the living room of our rectory and said to Bob, who was writing his Christmas card, Bob, would you like a drink? You know how we like to drink with others, though we will drink alone. And Bob said, don't think I'd mind one at all. So I went out and got the wearing blender and whipped up a real killer of a whiskey sour. About a quart's worth. (laughs) Poured Bob, what I thought was adequate for an earth person. (laughs) Poured something that I thought was adequate for me and brought them in and sat them down. And we continued to read or watch uh, TV and he to fill out his Christmas cards. And I finished mine, and his was about half finished. You know how civilians are with alcohol. (laughs) I said, Bob, would you like a little more? No, I don't think I would. So I went out and finished off the blender. But then I wanted more, and Bob was still playing games with that one I had brought him. (laughs) And I waited until it was empty and said, Bob, how about another? I wouldn't mind having a half of one. And he said, well, no, I'll split one with you. So I went back out, and I made another full blender of this elixir. And poured Bob what I thought he could handle and drank the rest myself. Then both of us tottered off to bed. Well, I had learned a few lessons about alcohol and the way it affected me, that when I got enough of it, it didn't stay with me for long. I seemed to rent it for a while. (laughs) Especially when I lay in the bed and the bed began to swim around, and then I would put my foot on the floor and we would pivot on that one foot that was on the floor. And having had an experience several years before in New York City where I had some teeth that the dentist had made for me and I had thrown them up out the 14-story window of the hotel, (laughs) I removed this little device and went in, of course, and got sick, as we'd know how to do, took a handful of aspirin, went back to bed, and it was all right. I just dropped away into a coma. And the next morning, Bob came downstairs holding his head in both of his hands and saying, Oh, my God, I am so sick. I was up and down all night, were you? No. (laughs) Once. (laughs) 
So when I went into Bob's office and said, Bob, I think I have a problem with alcohol, Bob just did, had very clear recollections of that Christmas season and agreed with me. And Bob put me in touch with another priest, a guy named Jim F., who was then an uh, associate pastor of a church in Ashland, Virginia. I'd never met Jim before that time. And Jim became my first sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love that man, and I respect him. And I was on the phone with him on Thursday. He's now in Florida. And I, the last things I said to him were, Jim, I love you. And his answer to me was, I love you too. And if he were to walk through this door now, it would be as though our conversation had never ended because I love the idea of what sponsorship meant to me. I guess I'm what they call a high-bottom alcoholic. I never lost my job. When you're a priest, there's not too many people who want it, so they're damn careful about throwing you out of it. I didn't run my family off only because the only family that I had near me was 700 miles away in Michigan. Though I managed to see what I couldn't do about warping several parishes in which I was assigned. I didn't lose my health because I was young. Simply that. And because I did not get all hooked up with a lot of other things that could have come along and that should have come along and had I continued drinking would have come along. I guess I could consider myself duly addicted when I say that I also smoked a little of those left-handed cigarettes from time to time. But I quit smoking them, and you want to hear why? It was against the law. It never stopped me from driving drunk. That's against the law, too. And the other reason that I quit smoking them is that they ruined the beautiful preaching voice. I sounded like Everett Dirksen every time I stood at the pulpit. Damn the eyes of anyone in this room who does not know whoever person is. <laughs> the first drink that I can ever remember taking was the top off my father's beer. It had the long neck bottles, and I would go in as a small boy, and I would drink the foam down and then bring Dad the rest of the beer. And that was my reward for having gone and gotten it for him. And I loved and admired my dad, and what my dad did I wanted to do. I wanted to be like Dad. He was a wonderful man, and he did these things, and he drank these beers. And finally, when I was four or five, I stole one and went upstairs to my bedroom to drink the whole thing and act like an adult. And although that was a small boy's little game, I believe in some ways that this was part of the pattern of my drinking. So that I could be like those I admired, at least in my mind, and so that I could build a dream for myself. When I was a youngster, before my teenage years, I delivered newspapers, and as a small boy growing up in a Michigan town, it was impossible to get alcohol, of course. But it was not impossible to go to the local grocery store and buy vanilla extract. And I drank a great many bottles of vanilla extract. Because it had alcohol in it. And because it made me feel good. I doubt that I ever got drunk. I know my customers thought I smelled marvelous. <laughs> but it was the proximity of alcohol that calmed me somehow. I heard another speaker once say that he would walk into the ABC store shaking so badly that people thought he was waving at them. <laughs> but when he said the words, wild Irish rose, he said this calm. <laughs> 
And by the time the bottle arrived in his arms, he treated it as tenderly as a Ming vase. And I think part of me identified with it. I did not necessarily need to be drinking it all the time, nor drunk, to get the effect and the pleasure from being around alcohol. And early in my life, I believe my mind changed about what this stuff meant for me. When I was in high school, the opportunities to get drunk were very few, but I never missed one. (laughs) Four young men, having found an older person who could buy liquor for us or beer for us, and I was the one who found him, which of course made me important in the eyes of my peers, would purchase one case of beer for four young men. I had a one-quarter investment in that case of beer, and I was hanged if I was going to go out of there on the shy side of a six-pack. So we drank as hard and as fast as we could in order to make up for the investment. And my respect for the investment I made in alcohol never ended. In fact, I still respect alcohol very much. I have a friend of mine who's a traveling salesman. He comes to my house about once or twice a year. And he brings a little bottle of carafe of wine and a pint of cherry brandy and a six-pack of Heineken beer. And I give him credit for just one night. That's not too bad. And then he sits down and he drinks one of those Heinekens before the meal, one small glass of that wine with the meal, and after the supper, while we take a walk and smoke a cigar, he will drink a little snifter of that cherry brandy, and then leave the rest of that mess in my house. (laughs) And I am too respectful of it to throw it down the drain. So I end up with this occasion of sin under my sink until that man comes back or I find some hapless civilian who will take it away. But I cannot pour it out. I still realize that I am under the influence of alcohol, whether I am consuming it or not. An old friend of mine, John Polachek, I can use his last name, he's crossed over and died sober, and I, he and I used to go to meetings in Lexington, Virginia. And one night after the meeting, we went to a little college hangout to get supper. And we were waiting for our order, and sitting on the table next to us was a young couple, and they got up and they left, and they went out to pay their bill, and I looked at John and says, hey, take a look at that table. Here are two glasses about half full of wine and a carafe with about that much in the bottom of it. And all I can remember, John looking at that for a minute, and he looked back at me and he says, Damn, those earth people. If they're going to waste it, why didn't they drink Coke? (laughs) And most of the drunks in the room here today will understand precisely what I mean. We valued that stuff. It spelled freedom for us. It certainly did for me. When did I start to get in trouble with alcohol? Well, looking back, in hindsight, is really what we have when we stand in positions like this. I was in trouble from the first time I ever drank. Somewhere down the line, my little mind snapped on and said, this completes you. Whatever you were not before you began drinking, you become when you do drink. If it was to be tall, to be strong, to be uh, well-read or intelligent or witty or sharp or brave, alcohol did it all. And when I found that at a reasonably young age, I stopped growing from that point on, boom, my emotional development stopped in that area. My intellectual uh, endeavors, they went on. I went on through high school, through college, and through seminary, and was ordained a priest. Physically, I grew up. I put on weight. I grew up my beard. I, I, my eyes got weak. <laughs> I grew that way. 
But that area of emotional development and growth was not there. When I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at age 30, the kid who walked in there and picked up that white chip was about 15. Maybe. I had some things that, of course, our stories are filled with darkness. I thought it was funny, some of it then. Some of it I think is funny now, and I thought it was tragic then. I found, first of all, that the area in my life that began to suffer was my spiritual life. I was a person with beliefs, beliefs in a higher power, belief in devotion and trust and faith in my church, to the point that I had devoted myself to study and preparation for the ministry. And I believe in a lot of my adult years that faith was only operating on half power. And I have a feeling, as I look back on it now, that my fealty switched over from the God of my fathers to the spirit that I could get out of a glass or a bottle. Did I mean for that to happen? Did I want to become some sort of a hypocrite and a liar about the things I believed in? Did I want my life and my values to be so separate? No, I didn't. Any more than you went into your mother's sewing room when you were little and tugged on her apron strings and said, Mom, I've decided what I want to be when I grow up is a degenerate drunk. (laughs) But the spirit in this man was uh, affected very much by my drinking. By the time I went into seminary, I was a damaged person flying on one wing. I know that. I didn't know it then. You see, I was also a Roman Catholic seminarian, and there is no real strong aversion to drinking among Catholics. God sakes, if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many Romans or ex-Romans are in this room, it would be pretty significant. I've heard alcoholism described as a Roman Catholic malady that is cured in Protestant church basements. Slowly but surely, my belief in God was eroded and was replaced. But I was still functioning as a Roman priest. The second part of me that I think went was my mental well-being. I'm nuts. (laughs) Somewhere down the line, some of my wires got unsoldered, crossed, and re-soldered. And the whole course of my thinking, my entire logical sequence of thought went awry from that time on. And I spent the last 14 years trying to get those things unsoldered again and re-soldered different. And that's part of what recovery has meant for me. The third part about me that went to hell in a handbasket was physically. And I would say that mentally and physically I put them together because the things I did with my body were driven by my mind. And there's where the shame came in. There's where the remorse comes in and the guilt. When I say those three words in a room like this, every single drunk in the whole room knows what I'm talking about. You take your darkest moments and you wear them just like I'm up here wearing mine. I knew what that was. And that made more drinking necessary to blot out the pain. Those events that occur in our lives, some of them, of course, are funny now. They weren't funny then. Here I am, an associate pastor in a church in Richmond, 
Spent the entire day drinking at someone's pool party. Spent most of the afternoon or later afternoon drinking at a friend's home, drinking Tom Collins. Arrived at the church drunk to discover that I was the celebrant for that evening's mass. I staggered into the sacristy, and the vestments for the Roman priest were laid out on the table. Some of you may know what those are. I took off my coat, hung it up. The first thing that you get into is called an alb. It's like an undershirt. runs clear to the floor. Tie it up here. They have them that are sort of front loaders with a zipper up the front. Those are easy. I got one of those bottom loaders. We had to climb in through the foot of the thing. <laughs> so I caught one hip on the vesting table and started up at the bottom of that thing and took a left turn up the sleeve. <laughs> and if it had not been for Mrs. Catholic, who was in there watching me, I probably would still be up there. <laughs> she extricated me from the place and got my neck in the neck hole and my arms in the armholes. <laughs> And I thanked her and grinned. The next thing you put on is a rope. It's called a cincture. It's one of the signs of chastity. No wonder I followed that one up. <laughs> you, you wrap it around you in the half. You tie a special knot in it that you really need to be sober to tie. They had to cut me out of it after Mass. Next is the stole. It looks like a great big long, long necktie that you just don't tie. You let it drape. And I had one part hanging down, walking on it all through the mass, and the other part up around that rope that I had gotten tied up in. And then over the whole thing, you put the chasuble, which is like a big parachute. And I was certainly in a free fall, I can tell you that. Someone leads me to the back of the church. In a Roman ceremony, the, the most important person in the ceremony comes last. I was a celebrant of the Mass. I was last. It's a darn good thing. I didn't know where I was. Follow them. I got into Mass. I managed to get through a sermon somehow. There was one gal up in Stanton when I moved up there who said, I wondered why your sermons made so much sense to me. There's a part of the Mass where we genuflect. It's a curtsy. It's a sign of respect for the things that I'm doing on the altar. You know, this is stuff I can laugh about today, folks. I was ashamed, ashamed of what I had done. You're supposed to genuflect, to bow to this thing, to show reverence to it. I knew better than to try to genuflect, because if I got down, I'd never get back up again. <laughs> so I decided to bow from the waist and caught the top of my head across the front of that marble altar and split the whole top of my skull open. <laughs> Blood streaming down my face. It's, oh my God, the passion of Jesus. I take the purificator, this little holy linen that we're supposed to use to wipe out the chalice, and I'm dabbing my bleeding forehead. Not one word out of those people after Mass. I had about 500 enablers in that room. Though one or two of them were not at all surprised to see me walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. They knew damn well I wasn't writing any term paper. Ah! Whoa! I worked with the hearing impaired, the deaf. They couldn't hear about me. They were wonderful people and wonderful to me, and I worked very hard with those people. I learned the sign language when I was in seminary, and I ran a ministry where I did retreat work, and I did all kinds of what I consider to have been exciting and, and even constructive things. That, that's 
not all of our career is terrible. I love these people, and I still do. I still have many friends among the deaf in Virginia. But I used to say mass to them in these chapels hereabouts. One time over in Norfolk, I was at DePaul Hospital. I got down there in time for mass. I don't know what I was doing, but I was about well in the bag by the time I got there. I got vested for mass. I got out in front. This time, I was wearing contact lenses. I thought I looked great in them. Sexy. I looked half drunk in them. I was half drunk in them. Well, I'm in mass again, and we have this... I'm saying the mass, and for some reason or another, I wipe across my eye and knock one of those hard lenses off the center of my eye. I don't know if any of you have ever done that who wear contact lenses, like having a hot nail back there. Of course, my eye immediately explodes into blood vessels. Tears are streaming. Snot is running. And I'm standing in front of all these people, and I'm thinking, oh, how... There's a little dish that we use to put the Eucharistic bread on. I swept Jesus off the bread. Got the thing up. Used the plate for a mirror in order to get that lens. And not a one of them said a thing. One of those new priests playing games of the liturgy again. But holy, look at him cry. They weren't making cruets big enough for me. That's a little thing they bring the wine in. Hell, hell, just soak the label off the bottle and get it out here. I never drank in the morning, but I said Mass at 6.30 every morning. Breakfast, ready for breakfast. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't talk about that stuff, people. I snuck in the door and sat down. I didn't want anybody to know I was a priest. Everybody knew I was a priest. You know how anonymous we are. I never wore the collar and still don't. You know, there's a lot of times in my drinking career where I woke up wearing out a stick, and I'll be damned if I'm coming up here to talk to you from behind a Roman collar and to pretend that I was something good that I never was. There were times when that collar was a symbol of something that was good, and every time I put it on, I knew I was a liar. I walked to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I sat down in the meetings. I never went to treatment. A man asked me, would you like to go to treatment? I said, no, if this AA business doesn't work, I'll go to treatment. I went to AA. Jim F., my first sponsor, met me at the Ashland meeting up in Ashland, just north. (laughs) Pretty good place to meet me, huh? (laughs) Tommy Clough, now deceased, I didn't use his last name, was at that meeting. I picked up all the literature I could hold and being a little excessive compulsive, I stacked all the big papers on the bottom and the middle-sized papers in the middle and the little papers and the little, all the corners together. Tommy comes over and sits down and says, <coughs> first meeting. <laughs> and I wanted to say to him, no, I'm just, pa- just passing through collecting for a paper drive. <laughs> you know how we are. We get to AA the first night. We want to look like we've been there for six months. I sat there and when it came my turn, I said, I, I'm Greg Dodge, and I think I may be an alcoholic. <laughs> and I went home, and I opened up that little 12 questions, and is AA for you? And lying like the devil answered yes to six of them. I thought, that's not bad, 50-50. <laughs> Maybe I'm not so bad after all. Then I read the directions. If I answered yes to one of them, I probably was an alcoholic. <laughs> I took that thing not too long ago, and lying only slightly less, I answered yes to 11 of them. 
We always want to hold a little bit out just in case we made a mistake and we go back to safe social drinking. I had a great time yesterday when uh, I was listening to Dr. Fluharty, and he mentioned how most alcoholics that he met did not have a sweet tooth. And I thought, well, I had a sweet tooth all the way. I drink beer and eat cake and dunk it, too. <laughs> I said to him, am I, uh, some, is this an exception? Can I go out and try some safe, uh, can I try some safe drinking? He said, no, I've met a few others, and I have met a few others, and I'm kind of relieved. You know, I hate like hell to have given the last 14 years of wonderful destructive drinking up if I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> I went to meetings, and I went to meetings, and I went to meetings, because Jim, my first sponsor, says we go to meetings. Well, that's good enough for me. You know, I trusted him. It was probably the first person that I had totally trusted in a long time. And he was one of the most divinely fractured human beings I have ever known. He used to come into meetings, and, and those of you who were in Richmond meetings when Jim came in, people were excited because he was going to feel what they were uncourageous enough not to want to talk about. And he would say the darndest things at the meetings, but they were real. They were the way he felt. And Jim shared that with me. He was a wonderful, wonderful sponsor for me because he was only slightly less sick than I was, and he'd been around four years. And I figured, well, if he's not drinking and he's still crazy, then as crazy as I am, if I don't drink, maybe I'll get a little better too. I sure did not want to see this wide gap between me as a newcomer and somebody who had arrived. I needed somebody like me. There were some people in Richmond who didn't like Catholics very much, and they said, there's an outfit called the, um, what was that thing called? The... Some sort of a Catholic outfit. The Calix Society. Why don't you guys start a chapter of the Calix Society? There's a lot of Catholics around in Richmond. I asked Jim, I said, should we start a Calix Society here? Be special. Jim said, no, I don't know that we ought to. Geez, these people seem to be getting sober pretty good. Why don't we just tag along with them? (laughs) Uh, Whatever Jim said is good enough for me. I loved and respected him. I can remember some other things that had happened to me in the course of my drinking career, things that were very shameful for me. And I would like to say that when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, that all those things stopped. Geez, I'd like to think that the wonderful guy I had always been, that I thought my mother had raised me to be, would just float to the surface like a cork the minute that I stopped drinking. But you know what I discovered? The wonderful person I thought I had always been never was. As I say, early in my drinking career, some wires got unconnected. And although I may have acted and have studied and have prepared and have even performed in certain expected ways, I was also at the same time acting, growing, and performing in some unexpected ways. And, and that when I got sober, those ways stayed with me for a good long time. My sponsor, Jim, said to me, and, and, and God love him. He said to me one time, I, I asked him whether I ought to change, you know, some of my behavior. It just felt so good to do some of that stuff, even sober. And he said, you know that old line we've heard that if it feels good, do it? He said, let me give you another one. When it stops feeling good, stop doing it. That made a lot of sense. That guy must have been reading the big book. Jim took me to meetings and took me to meetings and took me to meetings and he, he told me that he and I were embarking upon a journey and he used the term shoulder to shoulder. Nobody better than anybody else. Everybody trying to get sober together. What a powerful, wonderful journey I embarked upon in November of 1977. Was it easy? No. I'm awful glad I did not know what was lying in store for me when I walked through the doors and picked up that white chip. In fact, I didn't even pick up a white chip. I stole one. (laughs) Was it the St. Mark's meeting? 
on the boulevard in Richmond, Jim was was uh, leading the meeting. I heard the speakers. There were two of them. After the meeting was over, I went up after having, of course, failed the do belong in AA, and I slipped a white chip in and put it in my pocket and said to Jim, I'm in. Will you sponsor me? He got up and said, sure, and took my hand in his. I sneaked in to AA and for some reason or another stayed. I have never found it necessary to walk out the door and pick up another drink. And is that any great, is that any thanks to me? No. No, I wanted to drink last week. I thought about a drink in my sleep. If my crazy, warped, alcoholic mind can't get even with me while my eyes are open, it'll fix my wagon when they're shut. <laughs> what did I do? I went to a meeting the next day. I remember when I came down here, I'm, an, I'm a reserve chaplain in the Air Force, and so I hang around down in this area a lot, and I get to a lot of meetings. After I'm finished with my off, I'm off duty, get out of the uniform, go to a meeting, go to another meeting, go to another meeting. I can get to a lot of meetings. And I even had one time where I, while I was dreaming, I dreamt that I had a drink in my hand, but I had been to enough meetings so that in my dream I said, you fool, you're an alcoholic, put that thing down. And I did in my dream. And I realized something then, that this program will also work for us and on us in our sleep. Because there are times when we have no adequate defense against the first drink. And I hope never... Never to forget that. I am as much an alcoholic today, perhaps even worse, than when I walked through the doors almost 14 years ago. It never, never goes away. That sponsor, and I hope everybody here has one, that sponsor used to talk to me about the way I live. He never condemned me. He never once condemned me. Because he'd done a lot of the same things I had done. When I'd been in AA a very short while, I said, when should I do this fourth step? He said, are you got any whiskey on your breath today? And I said, no. He said, start writing. <laughs> he told me, he said, there are three areas in your life that I want you to look at. And I want you to look at your alcohol and drug history. I want you to get it down. I want you to take the year you were born and the year you came into AA and mark off every year in between on a piece of paper. And then I want you to start going back through and filling that thing out. And I got pretty close to that first drink. He said, the next column that I want you to look at, I want you to take a look at your work and your education career. I want you to write down every single thing about your work performance and your educational performance so that you can see what alcohol did to that. I saw my transcripts from the seminary. They read like a roller coaster. I found a confessor one time who loved scotch. And I did most, I was very spiritual that semester, but I certainly wasn't very academic. He said, the third area that I want you to look at is your sexual and emotional behavior. Because there's no drunk in the world who's failed to get in deep water in that area. And the sex can be divided into three specific areas. Too much, not enough, or of the wrong kind. (laughs) And he said, I want it very clear that I want to hear everything about it. You know, that part of my life is kind of fun to write about. So I wrote it all down and wrote and wrote and wrote and took that yellow legal pad to my sponsor and I sat down and I read the whole rotten thing to him. And he never took his eyes off my face for a second. And when it was all over, he said, how do you feel? I said, I feel humiliated, 
And if you don't want anything more to do with me after having heard this, I wouldn't blame you. And he reached out and grabbed my leg and he said, that was a good misstep. I'm starved. Let's go eat. I was no longer apart from AA. I became a part of AA in that passage. And I hope that every one of you has the opportunity that I did for a fifth step. Of course, a lot of things came out in that fifth step. A whole list of things that I was doing in a rather erratic and erotic fashion. And when it came time to work on those things, I would like to say again that immediately, boom, washed clean, all better, fix, fix. But it wasn't that way at all. I had to struggle with some of this stuff. I remember talking with Jim a great deal about that part of me that wanted to act like something other than a priest, and did. I thought maybe all that would be okay now that I had a fist step, but no. I had still operating like an adolescent, although I was in an adult's body. And Jim was very patient with me as I grew and worked through some of that stuff. And it took me a good long while to get some of those things sorted out for me. Because there was a time when I was so empty of esteem for myself that if somebody wanted to do be with me in any way whatsoever, whether it was appropriate or inappropriate, illegal or immoral, I felt that I had to go along because they may see something in me that I did not see in myself. So I ended up in some situations even sober that were compromising to every value that I had or every value that I didn't. I remember one time Jim and I talking about some of that stuff and and I said to him, what should be the standard that I operate on? And I'm reminded that Jim put me right back in the big book and I heard someplace else, somebody else who had been through that situation and and, uh, their sponsor had said to them, what I want you to do is I want you to go to page 69 of the big book where it talks about sex. Ain't that a great place to talk about sex? (laughs) And I acted exactly as this person acted because I ended up on page 96. I just got the numbers turned around, wires crossed, numbers crossed. And this is the way I took his advice. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. (laughs) Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. (laughs) After I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous five years, I had worked the first five steps. I had been sent up to St. Francis Catholic Church in Stanton up in the Shenandoah Valley, a beautiful church. I was sent up there as pastor. And while I was up there, I hit one of those real plateaus that we talk about in AA, where you're not growing, but you're not going. And somewhere down the line, I realized that the drift of my life would take me back into my next drink unless I did something desperate. That first sponsor told me that alcoholism was like a fast-moving river that terminates in a very deadly falls. And that when we got into the craft, we had no oars with which to direct ourselves, but the journey was so fun in the beginning that we did not miss any direction at all. And when we hit the rapids and things began to speed up, we thought of it as quite a lark for a while until we could hear the falls. And then we were knew, we knew we were destined for death. 
And A.A. was like a man standing on the rocks in the middle of that river who threw us a set of oars and said, pull up river for all your work. And the oars were the twelve steps of this program, and the person dug in with all of the strength of the desperate and pulled and pulled and slowly but surely stopped the downstream course and began to move ever so slowly upstream through the rapids, through the fast-moving water, to calm and quiet water once again. But always, always keep the oars in the water because the current is still there. After five years, I went on a retreat. I told the retreat master, a non-alcoholic priest, Chad, I want to do the first seven steps of the AA program. He said, it's your nickel, go ahead. I traipsed upstairs and I wrote another fourth step based on the seven deadly sins found on page 48 of the 12 and 12. Pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. And that was a butte. And this is just the crap I had pulled since I got into AA. And I went downstairs to talk to Chet about that and deliver the goods to him. And he sat in his rocking chair and I sat in my rocking chair. And both of us rocking back and forth. And as I read and read and read, Chet's rocking chair stopped and mine kept right on going. And his mouth began to open. And when I got to the end of that, he said, you, you, if you think that Alcoholics Anonymous has been put on this earth merely for the cessation of drinking, you are a fool. When that man said the word fool, it was as though someone had hit me with a brick. Seldom had I felt such an immediate ego deflation. Where before I had always come up with defensive anger, there was none. The man emptied me out with one four-letter word, fool. And I began to work those other seven steps, six through twelve. Am I a good man today? No. I don't want to be a good man. I'd like to be better than I was. You see, good people, or perfect people, are a perfect pain in the butt. (laughs) What AA taught me was three things, three wonderful things. It taught me, one, that I am no longer alone. I had chosen a solitary lifestyle in large measure because I didn't think I was worth being good company to anybody. And at least I could be a distant sign of something that was good, even if I didn't have the guts or the decency to live up to it. And I've never been alone in any. I walk into rooms like this and I sit down with people that I love in the program and some that I don't. And they will say things to me and about me that only another alcoholic could say and live. (laughs) I travel. I have come to places where family members, beloved family members, were dying of cancer. My mother up in Cleveland. And I threw myself into the arms of AA in that part of Ohio. And I still have friends in northern Ohio. I've walked into AA meetings in my own hometown of Stanton so low, so hurt, so angry, so filled with frustration. And someone will say, what's going on with you? And I know they love me and they care for me. I've not been alone. I still live alone. I share my little 25-acre diocese in western Virginia 
a little farm that I own, and I can have drunks right there with me because I also am a part of the loners and internationalists meeting that they're talking about having a meeting tomorrow. And I've been able to write letters all over the world to drunks. And I have fast friendships with people all over the globe. And I can sit at my own kitchen table and not be alone. Just take the pen in my hand and start to share experience, strength, and hope. I'm never alone because of AA. And I am so, so deeply grateful. The second thing I learned about being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it never needs to be the way it was again. I don't think that any one of us could stand ourselves when we walked in here. A mirror to us was an indictment. I had been sober 17 days, wondering whether or not sobriety is worth it. And I had to go up to Fredericksburg on a function that I did with the deaf each year. And at that function, we used to go down after all the work was done and drink and dance and carry on downstairs in the lounge at whatever hotel we were in and have a wonderful evening. And this night, I couldn't drink. So feeling sorry for myself, I went down and sat with them for a while. They looked like they were having a grand time. And I came back upstairs in my Roman collar and I sat down angrily at the desk and thought, you poor thing, here they are having a great time and you're up here sober. Then I looked in the mirror, and I only saw one of me. That had not happened in a long time. One time in Omaha, Nebraska, I had been out on a convention, and I was so alone, and I was so self-loathing, that I decided that I would go downstairs and I would wait in the lobby until someone good enough for me to go to dinner with would pass by, and they would recognize who I was and the greatness that I hope they saw in me and decide to invite me out to dinner. And they didn't. So I went out and I drank my dinner. And I got back and then I waited until the hospitality room opened. And I drank some more and some of them got sloppy drunk and I got sloppy drunk with them. Then I went upstairs to go to bed and I looked in that mirror again and I saw two of me. And I thought, well, I'll take my contacts. I was still wearing those things then. I'll take them out and go to bed. And I got into one eye and I couldn't find it. And I pulled and pushed and looked and peeked. Then discovered that I had put both of them in the other eye. third thing that I have discovered about Alcoholics Anonymous is the power of the spiritual in all of us. I was trained in religion, pretty well trained. Scripture, liturgy, early Christian thinking, you name it, right down the line. And yet I sense now that I knew something about religion, but I knew very little about the spiritual. And AA has taught me that. Because of some undefinable reality in this room, I can stay sober today. That is a great, great joy for me. Because of something that moves in this room and in our lives, I can be whole because you are here. And I love, love Alcoholics Anonymous. I had another sponsor, an old John Polachek. The old Polish gentleman, 
He's the one who taught me about prayer on my knees. Was I going to get down on my knees in my pajamas next to my bed and say a prayer at night and in the morning? No. Too well educated for that. But that old man used to come to my house. And I'd hear his knees hit the floor next to the bed. And in the morning when he got up, I'd hear his knees hit the floor next to the bed. And when that man died, he died with 23 years of sobriety. And he faced a very painful terminal illness with a lot of bravery. And he taught me how to get on my knees next to my bed. He is the one I sense in some ways gave me some of the greatest spiritual blessings that I will ever receive. And it's people like you who do exactly the same. What I'm doing here tonight is I am drawing upon your strength. What I may be giving in some part is just one man's story. But as I stand here in front of you and I experience what it is to have the spiritual part of this program at work on me, I know that it is understanding and support. I know that it's love and absence of judgment. I know that it is fellowship. And I realize that we are embarked upon a journey shoulder to shoulder. The last page of the first part of the big book says this. Still you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you.